Uh, some people just said, oh, uh, how, how are you feeling, Tom? I went, absolutely petrified. We're like, well, you're a teacher. Surely you're used to talking to, to people. Yeah, I'm used to talking to really small people. Quite immature people. Oh, hang on. Small and immature. No, I'm joking. Um, I, <laughs> I hope you guys are all right. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Tom. I've been coming along to NLCC for what must be six, six years? There we are. Um, now, whenever I'm standing here, having prepared something to share, it's always a wonderful, painful, and slightly challenging experience. Now, for me this time, potentially the worst part was where I first kind of read through the passage that we're going to be looking at today. And my first kind of, my first thoughts, my first impression. I went down a bit of a rabbit hole, and this is kind of where I started to self-analyze myself, and this is where I ended up. My initial thoughts were, well, is anyone here like a really kind of clean, tidy person? Um, yeah, because uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really not. We have these friends who like everything to be about right around their house, you know, no clutter on the tables or on the floor. There's a place for everything, and everything has its place. Dishes are washed immediately. Clothes are put in the laundry basket and washed in a timely manner. They even iron their shirts. There's a reason why I had to wear this hoodie this morning over the top of my shirt. They have a schedule for when each part of their house is going to be clean. It's like a show home. Not really, not really us, is it? Now, when you clean, you do it because, well, you think being clean is better than being dirty. When you're clean, you're less likely to have little pests around your house. When you're tidy, you have space and things are less likely to be broken. When you're neat, you know where things are. Now... We love to host people in our house, and when we do, it's a really good excuse to have a proper clean-up, and it feels so good. Surfaces clean, shiny taps, a cream-looking carpet, the best. But then there are times where you can't do a great job at cleaning, so you've got to cut a few corners. You might kind of just throw some objects in the cupboard and close the door. The things are out of the way... They look clean, but actually, it's not really that clean. The mess has just been moved around. Today's passage has us looking at cleanliness and really seeing it for what it is. So my friends, my family, today's passage is going to be a continuation of our series in Mark. We're going to be looking at Mark 7 verses 1 through to 23. So if you have your Bible, open up, whether it be an app or classic paper, open up and we will delve right in. But before I read the first part, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, through weak human words, give us grace to hear your true and living word. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, let's do it. 
I'm going to unpack some verses. I'm going to read little chunks at a time, unpack it, see what's going on, and then see what earth it means for us today. So verses 1 and 2. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating foods with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, when Paul preaches... He often references football. When Dale preaches, he often often references Marvel. When I preach, I reference teaching. So predictable. So, Jesus was being offsteaded. This was a band, a posse, a group, an ensemble, a delegation, whatever the collective noun for inspectors is have come to check up on Jesus um, and his activities. Now, just to say, the concept of evaluating Jesus' ministry is fine. In outward appearance, these men protect Israel from a potential false prophet or a false messiah. But, and there is a big but, though this is another official delegation of religious leaders from Jerusalem coming to evaluate the ministry of Jesus. We've already seen a previous delegation uh, in Mark chapter 3, and they pronounced a harsh condemnation against Jesus. So Jerusalem is clearly represented as the focal point of opposition to Jesus. Imagine, like Paul, I've done one for you, buddy. Imagine asking an Arsenal supporter to evaluate Tottenham. Imagine asking Iron Man to evaluate the characteristics of Thanos. Unbelievable. (laughs) Um, Giving cats a chance to talk about the joys of dogs? I don't really know what kind of picture we're going for here. Maybe a Labour supporter being asked to evaluate the performance of Rishi Sunak and PMQs. They've kind of already got a prejudged idea of the person before they do the evaluation. These guys had turned up from Jerusalem and they'd already decided what they wanted to decide about Jesus and they were just looking for something to back up what they had to say. So, back to the inspection. They came and gathered around Jesus. It was mealtime, so everyone sat down. I imagine everyone sat down. No one stands up and eats. Much to the Pharisees' surprise, Jesus' disciples just started tucking in without even washing their hands. Now, this was scandalous. A massive eating faux pas. Think eating a burger with cutlery. (laughs) Using a soup spoon to eat dessert. Putting pineapple on a pizza. Clicking your fingers to get the waiter's attention. Now, in the Pharisees' eyes, it was actually worse than all of this. Maybe this is the closest uh, picture I can get. Um, Myself, Ellie, by the way, Ellie's my wife, in case we're wondering. Um, The first Christmas we spent together with my dad down in Kent. Now, my dad loves tradition, which is quite apt for this preach. And, of course, for the, the, Christmas, the Christmas dinner, Christmas lunch, it's, you know, 
turkey on the trimmings, then it's the pudding, and then it's the cheese and port rounds, where you have to pass the port by your right hand and put it on the table, and the next person has to pick it up. It's completely ridiculous. Anyway, quite rightly, any fancy a slice of cheese. And there was a, a lovely runny bit of brie going on, and Ellie was like, I'll have a bit of that. Little did she know, she committed what could have been the worst eating faux pas in the Fairbank family household. Now, this may be lost on you, and if so, I apologise, but she got the cheese board. She got the knife. She cut the nose off the brie. <laughs> the look on my father's face was similar to, I imagine, how the Pharisees were looking at disciples. <laughs> one of outrage and one of disgust. Ellie has not had a slice of brie at my family house since. So back to the disciples washing their hands. Now, this was not like when your mother or father told you to wash your hands before you came to eat when you were a kid. This had nothing to do with hygiene. It was all to do with ceremony. And the next two verses in our passage explain how this is so. Verses 3 and 4. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat, eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So, it was part of their tradition to ceremonially wash before eating, especially when coming from the marketplace. Again, this was not to do with hygiene. The Jews had a number of thoughts on what would make them spiritually unclean. Many people thought that just being around Gentiles would make them unclean, which is why they would ceremonially wash their hands after going to the marketplace. While at the market, the Jews would come into contact with the Gentiles, and they thought this would defile them, make them unclean, kind of ruin their purity almost. They thought that those Gentiles were doing all sorts of dirty things. The Gentiles were so far away from God that if the Jews were even around the Gentiles, they would become unclean. Now, it does make a little bit of sense. If you have clean clothes or dishes, touching something dirty will make those clothes or dishes dirty. Now, God, through Moses, did establish a number of laws pertaining to cleanliness. If you had a certain disease, you had to show yourself to the priest upon becoming cured. A priest in the service of God had to have a certain level of spiritual cleanliness to serve God. And they had ceremonial washing as a sign of the seriousness of cleanliness. However, over time, the Pharisees and their crew wanted to be more holy. So they started to follow those rules of ceremonial washing. It wasn't necessarily bad, but eventually the Pharisees wanted everyone to follow those rules. Now, I believe at the time that we are looking at, the tradition about washing was not widely known or enforced. Now, for special occasions, people were aware. For example, there were large stone jars that were used for ceremonial washing at the wedding where Jesus turned water to wine. But I don't think it was observed all the time. 
because disciples just went ahead and started eating. The Pharisees were appalled because Jesus was a rabbi. And in their mind, he should have been teaching his disciples about the traditions that the Pharisees followed. Okay, so now we're going to read uh, the next part. We're going to read verses 5 through to 8. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding up onto human traditions. So, the tradition of the elders, which is the ceremonial hand-washing, lies at the heart of this dispute. The Ofsted delegation were concerned that their whole body of teaching was under threat by what seemed to be ritual carelessness of Jesus' disciples. It seemed obvious to them that the disciples should be following the tradition of the elders in regard to the washing. Now, at this point, the crowd's ears would have been, what's going to happen next? Because their lives were run and governed by tradition. And they wait for Jesus' response. What's he going to do? Jesus answered them with an open discussion about the merits of ceremonial washing. Uh, a frank discussion explaining the reasoning behind the washing, right? Uh, he maybe even set up a little PowerPoint to help make his point. No. He went right on the offensive. Jesus just kind of lays right into them by calling them hypocrites. Now, we know a hypocrite is someone that says one thing but does another. But in Greek, the word literally describes a play actor. Someone who is merely pretending to be something he is not for the sake of the show. That's exactly what these people were doing. And Jesus nails them to the wall for their hypocrisy. Jesus knew their hearts and the real reason for their question. They weren't really wanting to honour God by following the commands. The Pharisees were supposedly a part of the Jewish religious leaders, but they didn't really care about following God's words. They had no real desire to seek God. They only sought to follow their own rules instead. And just to force the point home, just to prove it, he gave a little example in the next part of the passage. Verse 9. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honour honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what they might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, brackets, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. So basically what this is saying is that one of the Ten Commandments is to honour your father and mother. That is one of the big commands of God. They should be some of the most important commands in a Jew's life. 
A little after commandment, the Bible mentions that anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. This showed the seriousness of the command and how important it was to really, truly to honour your parents. But in the tradition of the elders, there was a loophole, something called Corban. Now, Corban probably had noble roots. To declare something as Corban is to call it devoted to God. That sounds pretty sound, to be honest. You're earning some proper brownie points for doing that. That made it pretty easy to identify what a person wanted to give to God. But the problem is, is that if people wanted to, they could abuse it. Something could be called devoted to God, but it's not actually given to God. You could devote it to God, but use it for your own purposes. And that what was being happened in Jesus' time. It basically became a loophole in honouring your parents. So, if your parents needed help, and you could help them with something that you had, but you didn't want to help them, you could just say, I'm devoting it to God. Can't use it now. For example, if your parents needed help, like moving house, let's say, and you have a truck, you could use the truck to help your parents. But if you're thinking, nah, Actually, I'm afraid this, uh, this truck is devoted to God, therefore I cannot use it for you parents. That is how it's being used. Now, this basically is saying the Pharisees were using a tradition and were holding it higher and higher regard than God's word. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that all the Jewish teachers would have supported this loophole or that Jesus is issuing blanket condemnation on the tradition at all. But what it is, is that it's more the attitude to the disciples' behaviour demonstrates how easily they slip from honouring the law to elevating the tradition. They keep the heart and spirit from God in applying the rules of men. That's what's going on. Right, I'm just going to read the last part that we're looking at today. Uh, and then we'll start to unpack it a little bit more. So uh, again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Oh, are you so dull? He asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is, with, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So, Jesus now moves into a much wider principle of what really defiles human beings. Jesus does the classic explanation by saying what it is not and then what it is is basically the food does not affect who or what the person is but that which 
comes out of a person is expressive or who or what that person is. You couldn't become dirty just because you were near a Gentile. You wouldn't commit a sin just because a prostitute was nearby or a murderer. Someone else's sin is not infectious to you. Now, I am encouraged by verse 17 and by the disciples because, we've said this quite a few times, although they probably should have known this by now, they at least had the sense to ask for help in understanding this. Uh, And Jesus definitely agreed that they should have known it by now. Dull. Basically, he turned around and called them spoons. The essence that Jesus reinforced and apologies for being rather crude, is that the importance slash harmlessness of food itself in the spiritual sense is clear from what happens to it after you eat it. Now, a quick side point, the whole all food being clean bracketed comment. There is a much bigger point to be discussed here that I'm not going to be able to do justice and unpack completely. But just to say that Mark is saying that Jesus is reinterpreting the rules that are set out in law about food and drink and the traditions that are intertwined. This does not mean that all of the laws of Moses was to be scrapped. That's definitely not the case because he even used some of the law earlier on in verse 10 when he was shutting down the Pharisees and also in Matthew chapter 5 when he said do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them no instead Jesus is reminding the audience of the spiritual purpose of the laws Just think of it as viewing it from a different angle, a different perspective. If you look at the laws again in the light of Jesus' teaching and the ministry and events in his life, all is very, very different. Ceremonial laws such as forgiveness, cleansing and purity are now found in and applied to us through the life and death of Jesus. And then there's this, quite frankly, shocking climax with a catalogue of evils that is not dealt with by a logistic approach. Jesus' point, once again, is whatever stimulus there may be from the outside, it certainly does not come from the ritual connected with food. The origin of those deeds and vices is within. In the heart, not in the stomach. Now, when we were praying earlier on, I can't remember who it was, but we were in the conservatory, and we prayed today that we would be challenged. Now, if no one else was, when I was doing this, this was a bit of a challenge for me. So, what does this mean to us? Well, let me put it this way. Pornography is not a good thing. But let's not kid ourselves. Getting rid of it will not rid us of sexual immorality because it's already there. Porn just brings out what was already there. We can look at violence that is happening in the United States. We can advocate better gun control, which is good, 
but we can't fool ourselves into thinking that it will solve the problem. The murder and malice originate from within us. If guns didn't exist, I fear that we would just find another way to outlet that. Social media. You can see a lot of greed, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly, but just abolishing social media would not solve the problem. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok have just made an outlet for what was already within the person. We like to blame external things for our ills, but the source is in our hearts. The source of the sin is in our hearts. It is not because we sin that we are sinners, but we are sinners, and that is why we sin. We can't be tempted to sin if the desire was not already there. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 wrote, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but I hate, but what I hate, I do. Our own efforts are hopeless. Paul cries out again, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And he answers, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, for someone who likes to be all jolly and ridiculous all the time, it's been a bit of doom and gloom. Sorry, we're going up now. Only Jesus can cleanse us. Only Jesus has the power to clean us from the inside out. The Jews had a sacrifice system to atone for sin, but that was just another outward cleansing. It did nothing for the inside. The Bible says the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled all those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered him unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that led to death? so that we may serve the living God. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He took the punishment that was meant for us, and by doing so, he actually cleansed us and solved our real problems. Jesus changed us to be better. He brings us into perfection. The best thing is that all the work is already done. Jesus already went to the cross for us. Now, one last little point. You might be thinking, but what's wrong with tradition? We have tradition. Well, I would suggest this is going to be a bit of a challenge. I mean, I love tradition. I come from a really traditional family. Now, our everyday life and upbringing would have been formed by tradition. Now, how many of us here, maybe when you got married to someone, had to have that kind of conversation of, what's the tradition for Christmas Day? What do you do? When do you, uh, when do you open the stockings? What meat should we have? Do we watch the Queen King's speech? What do you do? And you've got to sort of make, and that makes Christmas special. 
Tradition on its own isn't necessarily a bad thing. It actually sometimes helps things to happen. Now, in Christian terms, there are obviously very different approaches to the use of traditions and rules within church contexts. There are big traditions between the more traditional church contexts and ours, for example. But the reality is, is that many of the traditions of other church contexts are not wrong in and of themselves. I mean, I've helped out at several kind of Catholic weekends away and conferences, and some of the things they do are quite foreign to me, and I find quite confusing. But I think we can almost put most of that to the side and just get right down to the essence, to the main part. The main point is that salvation and spiritual purity are not found in those traditions. They are found in Jesus. It is not about whether you should have traditions or not. Sometimes we can't seem to survive without traditions. I tell you what, if we were to do a social experiment and we set up a new group with no traditions, how quickly do you think traditions will then start to be formed? The key test that I feel we need to respond to today is testing any tradition that we, either as individuals, as family units, or us as a church, have, and make sure that it is true to Scripture that it claims. Examples that might include it are the cycle of the Christian year. Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost. They are all customs that we've kind of grown up with and how we observe these different kind of festivals. The scriptures actually have nothing to say about it, but most of us in church enjoy it and find it helpful. Fasting during Lent, using an Advent wreath during Advent, you know, in some church contexts, using different colours to celebrate different times of the year. These are all traditions that have evolved, and they're fine in their place, but we've just got to keep the main thing the main thing. The purpose of these traditions is to help us to lead a gospel life. Loving God, loving our neighbour, seeking the kingdom of God first, avoiding greed, caring for the poor and needy, loving our enemies, and forgiving those who hate us, and so on and so on. When our traditions help us to do that, great. Anyone here ever had a Christmas that's been ruined because one of the traditions has gone wrong? Someone burnt the turkey. There were no crackers in the supermarket on Christmas Eve. I mean, someone's cancelled coming to visit you a few weeks before and you feel like your Christmas has been ruined. Sort of missing the point, eh? So, brothers and sisters, don't fall into the trap of Jesus' critics. They used the failure of following a certain ritual to get in the way of accepting the spiritual and physical liberation being made to them. Don't let the little things get in the way of Jesus and what he's trying to do. If you're going to take just one thing away, and this is where I'm going to land today, spiritual purity, being clean on the inside, is not found in any of this external activities and stuff. It's found in Jesus.
and apply to us through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. So I'm going to ask, could the band come up and start kind of doing what you do? <laughs> now, we're going to need to be pretty open about this because this is hard and this can be, no, this is quite a dangerous thing because the Pharisees started out thinking that what they were doing is okay and it's a bit of a slippery slope going down. So we're going to actually put into practice something that we talked about in this preach. We're going to do a bit of testing of what we have and what we do. I'm going to make sure that traditions we have, things that we do, are good. And if they are, then praise God. That means God is front and center. So, there are some prayer points that we'll go on to in a minute. But I think it's actually more important. We just create a bit of time to just think, reflect on anything that we might have in our lives. That rather than being a signpost to God, is actually like a roadblock and gets in the way. So I'm just going to stand back for a bit these guys are just going to play we always complain about not having enough time to do stuff so I'd love to make some time for that so I'm going to come back up in a minute and throw out some kind of things that respond to but let's just think pray talk to God you know what he may well put his finger on something